welcome to this week's episode of the show before the show podcast trying to think of something witty to lead in with and i uh, landed on high it's always good to land on high I think. yeah sure you know unless <laughs> you're in it no i was gonna go with a bad joke and say unless you're an airplane in which you want you want to land on low that's oh, it damn we gotta start this over <laughs> i'll do it again i will i will keep these jokes coming. you're just giving me more time to brainstorm i was gonna say that's or... that's the problem is you'll just come up with better worse jokes exactly yeah. that'll be the issue um so we'll uh we'll just power through we'll pretend like this never happened we'll pretend like this intro has not occurred uh but uh welcome to this week's episode of the show before the show from milb.com the official podcast of minor league baseball my name is tyler mon he is sam dykstra in new york city i um was listening to a couple of podcasts um, the last few days, and I noticed that the hosts all introduce themselves individually. I introduce you every week. Is that annoying? Would no, like I'm, say, I'm Sam Dykstra. No, I'm fine with that. I, I let's like let's just try it. Let's just try it. That's uh, this week's episode of the Show Before the Show podcast. I'm Tyler Vaughn. And I'm Sam Dykstra. Ah, well, it's something to, something to storyboard. <laughs> story yes we're going to be staring at two boards with in which yeah, it's your there's, face with the, there's the illustrations bubble. of us yeah exactly um you know we're just always trying to get better this is the 284th episode of this show man we're we're constantly trying to push and get better and uh break the walls break the fourth wall i, I feel like we always break the podcasting wall. yeah i think so i think we're doing that right now yeah, we're always t- telling people, well, this is what we talked about off air, and this is how we set up the show this week. And- I'm looking into the camera like it's an episode of The Office. I don't know why there's a camera. <laughs> we don't do well. We do this on Zoom now, but we we do. That's true, but we don't do it with cameras, which no. it would not really be that much of it. Actually, it would be really creepy if you were to turn, if I were to turn my camera on right now because I'm in. Uh, my little podcasting studio, but the light has gone. I have like one of those tap lights. The light went out in here. So it would just be the glow of my computer screen on my face in a dark room. And that would be a little bit frightening. We're recording this a little bit after the MVP announcements uh, yeah. here on Thursday. And the I don't know if you the saw show those. After dark. Yeah. The show for the, for the show after dark. Uh, I don't know if you saw this Tyler, but Dale Murphy Got to announce the NL MVP, which is Colorado cool. Rockies legend Dale Murphy. Exactly. So, also Braves legend. So he, it was cool that he got to give it to Freddie Freeman, which I felt like was a giveaway. Love Dale Murphy by all accounts. One of the best people in baseball ever. You ever get a conversation with him? Everybody comes away with him, uh, being happy that they got to talk to him. Great guy. That being said, looked like he forgot to turn on the lights in his living room when he did the Zoom interview with MLB Network. Like ah. it was just the glow. Of Dale Murphy and Dale Murphy's smile lights up a room on its own, so it worked. He made it work. It was fine, um, but I feel like somebody should have given him a note of maybe that Room Raider account on Twitter or something. Should have just yeah, yeah. It's it's that the twenty first century. We can an turn entertaining on account. Now. That is true. Um, yeah, so we're we're not going to do that for uh, this no. week's episode of the show um, or any episode of the show. Sorry, y'all. We're we're going to keep this thing an audio medium since you know you're welcome video podcast anyway you're welcome Frankly. um but we got a lot coming up for you on this week's episode of the show before the show it's another uh week that is a treat for all of you and that you don't have to deal with me during uh the interview or talking with ben um so you are all welcome uh but we got a lot coming up sam give us a, a little preview actually we'll save the preview of the interview for after our our initial conversation here because we got a lot to get to 
Fair enough. You guys okay. know you you've read the description. You know who the interview. Yeah, is. that's we'll, true. We'll you preview know. in it. In that's true. Bit. It's not like we're you know you're turning on Johnny Carson in 1986 and wondering who the guest is going to be. Um, so let's dive in. There is uh there. It's no secret that there are a lot of changes coming to minor league baseball over the next several weeks. And uh, as we head into the holiday season, we're starting to get a little bit of a look at what some teams affiliate trees are going to look like. And uh, I think at least from my vantage point, I was kind of expecting more of a, a one-time rollout of the, the whole structure of everything. We've sort of started to get it in, in drips and drabs. The New York Yankees came out um, with a release in which they named two changes to their minor league system, including one that brings in a formerly independent league franchise, which is now uh, going to be a double a team in the New York Yankees organization. And another team that used to be a Tampa Bay Rays uh, affiliate, which is going to be moving up a handful of levels to class a advance uh, the New York Mets have announced their affiliates for next year as well. So what we are seeing from these groupings is the confirmation that short season ball will no longer exist in its current form in minor league baseball. Obviously we knew that was coming the Appalachian league uh, with the news that that would be transitioning to a collegiate summer league Uh, going forward. There have been reports that the New York Penn league has been offered something similar. Uh, We're still not sure exactly what the situation with the Northwest league and the pioneer league are going to be, but we will keep you updated on all of those. Um, the Gulf Coast League and the Arizona League will still exist, as will the Dominican Summer League for short season ball. But main affiliates for major league teams from now on will be what we currently know as Class A full season, Class A advanced, Double A AA and Triple A. I know there was even some conversation today on social media. The the terrific uh, Jesse Goldberg Strassler, the radio voice of the Lansing Lugnuts, was saying, you know, it really probably would make some sense if they went to changing the names of uh, the level designations. Where you know, back in the day, baseball's affiliate levels used to be Class A, Class B, Class C, Class D, etc. Triple A, Double A, Single A is kind of confusing, especially because of the way that Single A had been broken up into three different levels in itself with High A, Low A, and Short Season A. Uh, obviously, the Short Season Ball is not a designation that we'll have to worry about uh, going forward. But even High A and Low A is kind of confusing to a lot of people. So we'll see if that terminology even sticks around. But here is what we know for the two franchises In the Big Apple, the New York Yankees, starting in 2021, will call these four teams their minor league affiliates. Triple-A Scranton-Wilkes-Barre, which uh, has been the Triple-A affiliate of the Yankees for quite some time. Uh, The Somerset Patriots, a formerly independent league team, formerly in the Atlantic League, now will be the double-A franchise of the New York Yankees. They are based in Bridgewater Township, New Jersey. Uh, at TD Bank Ballpark. They will now be the, the AA franchise replacing AA Trenton. Uh, Hudson Valley, formerly a Class A short season New York Penn League affiliate of the Tampa Bay Rays. They jump up essentially two or three levels uh, to Class A advance. They will be the high A affiliate of the Yankees in Wabingers Falls, New York. And the Tampa Yankees, of course, uh, a franchise, or the Tampa Tarpons, I should say, formerly known as the Tampa Yankees, franchise owned by the New York Yankees. They will be the Class A squad, formerly Class A advanced, as the Florida State League, it appears, will drop down to be a low A league. Got all that? Uh, in the New York Mets organization, we know that Syracuse, like uh, some of the other teams that we were discussing, uh, owned by the parent club, Syracuse will continue to be the AAA affiliate of the New York Mets. There are two teams 
that we are unsure as to what level they will occupy. Uh, Binghamton, which has been the double A affiliate of the Mets for quite some time, uh, that squad and Brooklyn, which has been the class A short season, New York Penn League affiliate of the Mets. Those two teams right now, we're not sure which of those is going to be double A, which is going to be class A advanced. The class A team will be St. Lucie, uh, based in Port St. Lucie, Florida at the, the Mets spring training facility. They will like the Tampa Tarpons. They will be in the, uh, now low A Florida state league. That is what we know. Two major league clubs with four minor league affiliates. That is the structure of what minor league systems will look like going forward. But that's all we know is those eight teams. So I think for anybody who is hoping that we'd get, you know, one big giant press release or a website or something that would announce everybody all at the same time, obviously that's out the window now, but at least we're getting a little bit. There are tea leaves here that we can read as to what systems are going to look like. Sam, your thoughts on all this. Yeah. And we should point out, how this happened. Uh, there were some media reports about what was happening in the Yankee system. So the Yankees decided to out and out, just come out and confirm some of those details with a press release, as Tyler said, um, you know, leaving out Trenton and Staten Island, Somerset and Hudson Valley moving in. Um, so they addressed that full on. The Mets, on the other hand, uh, had a press conference this week to announce a new owner. Sandy Alderson was also there because he's running baseball ops right now. He was asked in the course of that press conference, what are you guys doing for minor league affiliates? And he came out and said, you know, we're going to be Syracuse, Binghamton, Brooklyn, and St. Lucie. Uh, he even specifically addressed seeing full season ball in Brooklyn, potentially watching a game on Coney Island uh, or at Coney Island in April and May and how cold that, that could be, but how exciting that is for that local area. Pretty neat uh, on that end. So that that's essentially why this came out now. I still expect what's going to happen is that we're going to get a few other details nailed down first, and then we're going to get the rest of the clubs. I think these were kind of two special circumstances and both sides as part of the uh, PBA negotiations saw how that went down and how not great it is uh, to have only eight teams confirmed so far. Um, so I would expect the next announcement we're going to get is everybody else's at the same time or at least it's going to be in a grouping of like one or two days apart from each other. Um, so if you think like, oh, my team's going to be announced pretty soon, I wouldn't bet on it. I think these were just two special circumstances uh, and things are going to be tightened up from here on out. Now, start with the exciting stuff uh, again. And I'm going to talk to, to Ben about this here in a little bit, uh, but it is exciting to have full season ball here in Brooklyn, um, you know, to be a, about a 25 minute ride away from the subway. Uh, you know, I try to get down to Coney Island as much as I can catch a Cyclones game. The fact that that is now going to be available in April, May, and most of June, as opposed to just a couple months in the summer, that's pretty exciting. I'm sure people in the Somerset area feel the same way there and up in the Hudson Valley. Uh, again, these are cold places, but it's still going to be neat to have full season ball and the additional games and, higher up prospects. You're not just going to get short season guys. You're going to get class A advanced or even double A. We'll see how Brooklyn shakes out. Um, so that's pretty exciting to see new ball in new places like that. Um, Columbia, we mentioned, is going to be left out of the Mets system. Columbia has already come out and said, we fully expect to find a new affiliate. They're putting right. things together behind the scenes. They have got one of the best ballparks in baseball. It's only a couple of years old. Right. They moved from Savannah. They used to be the Sand Nats. They became the Columbia Fireflies. Um, when so much of the discussion this year is about facilities and making sure they're up to snuff and, and 
updated. Columbia is almost fresh out of the box, essentially. Um, so fully expect Columbia to find an affiliate. Uh, we'll, we'll see exactly what affiliate that's going to be, but I wouldn't worry about that. Trenton and Staten Island, a little more up in the air. We don't have solid details on those quite yet. Um, but, you know, it, it is partly exciting and, and good to, to have some of these details out there. Um, but for anybody expecting like, oh, by Thanksgiving, we'll have full answers. I don't think that's going to come, um, you know, based on some of the discussions we've been having. It's, it's still maybe 30 to 45 days out. What that means is we'll probably have answers by the end of the year, um, but don't necessarily expect them next week uh, for your favorite club, minor league club or major league club uh, to have those affiliates confirmed. So Again, kind of nice to have these eight out right now, but we'll, we'll discuss the full slate, which I expect is all going to be coming at once here in, in the coming weeks. You know, and there is obviously a, a downside of this. Um, as of right now, Trenton and Staten Island um, are in Columbia, as noted, but uh, Trenton and Staten Island a little bit more tenuous. Uh, in wondering what the future holds for them. And there's been a lot of discussion in the media from those two front offices, especially of how they feel like this went down. Uh, and that's tough. And we're going to see some other tough situations. I know Rochester has already come out and said, essentially, they are done as a, a Minnesota Twins affiliate. Uh, the Rochester Red Wings are one of the oldest franchises in all of professional baseball, not just in minor league baseball, not just in the international league. They can date professional baseball in Rochester back to the 1880s. Um, so there are a whole lot of other things that remain to be worked out here. And uh, for, I mean, I wish that we had more details that we could give you right now, but we don't at the moment. Um, but as Sam noted, the next few weeks, we're going to learn a lot about how the minor leagues will look going into 2021. Uh, the other scary thing is we still don't know what the rest of the world is going to look like going into 2021. And yes, there was obviously great news this week about a potential vaccine that's on the way and all that, but we are nowhere near out of this thing. And at this stage, the United States, we were recording this on Thursday, November 12th. Today, the U.S. registered 150,000 new confirmed cases of COVID-19. So... The idea that like the calendar is going to flip to 2021 and things will start getting back to normal. That's not the case. Uh, so we, we are unsure as what that means for all of sports going forward uh, into 2021. And obviously once we hopefully have uh, access across the board to a vaccine and things like that, then things will get back to normal, but there are so many things that are up in the air and uh, we will keep you abreast of all developments as we can as things move along here over the next several weeks. But um, it's going to be really interesting, obviously, to see a, a franchise pulled into affiliated ball like Somerset. That's something that, uh, at least in my memory, I don't remember a, an independent team coming into the minor league fold. We've heard rumors of other ones across the, uh, the baseball landscape who will do the same. But there are a lot of things still to be worked out. So, uh, unfortunately, I wish we could come on and say, here's what it looks like. You can stop holding your breath. We've all got the answers. We don't have that quite yet. Yeah, yeah, no, that's that's the one thing we we should continually caution. And even Tyler mentioned Rochester, and and that was another thing Rochester m mentioned specifically and directly with its fans. And they, I think they called themselves like a free agent. Um, they're trying to sell themselves. It sounds like behind the scenes they're working on a deal uh, to become another affiliate. Again, a, a stadium that's been around forever. Uh, they seemingly had a good partnership with the Twins, but in this time right now, in which uh, the big push is to limit travel. Uh, the twins 
having their AAA affiliate in New York when they are a Minnesota team is, is not great for them. Um, so hopefully some other team can swoop in and, and take in the Red Wings. It sounds like that's certainly happening. So if you're at Rochester, I wouldn't freak out uh, that much. But uh, yeah, it's going to be a game of musical chairs that's happening behind the scenes right now. And hopefully, you know, we're going to see where the dust settles here in the coming weeks. So uh, we'll keep you updated on all that. On all that, but there is other baseball news to discuss as we are uh, in awards season. As Sam noted a little while ago, we just passed the uh, the naming of the American and National League Most Valuable Players uh, as Jose Abreu takes it in the AL and Freddie Freeman takes it in the NL. But for our purposes, we want to talk about two guys we got pretty well acquainted with over their time in the minor leagues, the American League and National League Rookies of the Year. Kyle Lewis of the Seattle Mariner, a unanimous selection for the Mariners outfielder. We'll talk about that. Uh, and the right-handed relief pitcher, Devin Williams of the Milwaukee Brewers, wins it in the National League. Let's start in the AL. Were you surprised, Sam, that this was a unanimous selection for Kyle Lewis? I was not surprised. Uh, obviously, there's some other strong candidates here. Luis Robert is somebody we talked about a lot during the year. He was all our AL Rookie of the Year favorites, I think. Uh, coming into the year he ended up coming in second he got 27 second place votes so not quite a consensus second place but as close as you can really get there um, but Kyle Lewis uh, I'm actually on the record of doing this I previewed the NL rookie of the year going into the final weekend and I said Kyle Lewis won it like congrats to Kyle Lewis I wrote that on the site and it, it's kind of nice to get that vindication but he just got off to a really hot start um, you know hit for power average kind of crept back on him. He finished at 262, um, but 11 home runs in 58 games at a WRC plus of 126. He was worth 1.7 war Just somebody who in a 60 game season, I think it helped to get off to a fast start and establish the narrative. And just for him to dominate the way he did for a couple months there for the Mariners, you know, he would have been an all-star this year. Uh, had we actually had an all-star game. I think that certainly helps. Um, so, to, and I think there's a little bit of the story of him and the fact that he had knee problems earlier in his career, overcame those and was hitting as well as he did for the Mariners this year. I think that kind of helps, you know, these are voted by humans. Uh, it is a little nice to get that type of story. Uh, Luis Robert, Robert won a gold glove this year, was really good defensively, showed a lot of speed, seemed like every week I was seeing a tape measure home run from him. The hit tool was a little bit of a question for him, um, but Kyle Lewis was pretty consistent throughout the year, got off to that really hot start. The numbers came back a little bit, but in a 60 game season, that's all he really needed to do. So I wasn't surprised uh, that he was unanimous. I think over a full season, Luis Robert could have done some more things and maybe we would have seen some of these other guys catch up, uh, given more time, but given the short season, given what Lewis did, I think that was pretty much a runaway. And on the national league side, uh, you get a guy who we didn't have, I don't think anybody discussed going into the season and our, uh, our season preview show is potentially a rookie of the year winner, but Devin Williams, he struck out 53% of uh, hitters he faced this year. His ERA was 0.33 opponents batted 090 against him. Uh, and he became the first reliever to win rookie of the year since 2011. Uh, that's a, a pretty impressive. I mean, the Brewers just keep churning out these dudes out of the bullpen who are unhittable. 
Yeah, yeah, it was funny to think that he wasn't even the closer on that team uh, because Josh Hader was there. You know, like these are numbers that you would expect out of a reliever to be like, okay, we're moving him to the back of the pen. That wasn't necessarily the case with Devin Williams. Um, but that also speaks to the age we live in. And I think the fact that he won this award also speaks to the age we live in and that we value relievers more now than, than maybe we ever have um, given the roles that, we, that they're put in. You know, if, the, if there are big outs to be gotten in the sixth or seventh inning, your best relief pitcher might come in in the sixth or seventh. Whereas growing up, at least for me, Tyler, you're the same way, uh, we were always taught you save that guy till the ninth. Uh, Devin Williams became the, that weapon for Milwaukee that they could use him at any time because of the strength of his changeup. His changeup was probably the best pitch in baseball this year. Um, just the way he was able to throw it and the way, we'll, the way he was able to pitch it off his fastball. Uh, he threw it 52.7% of the time, which made it a majority of his pitches. Um, but still the threat of him throwing a 97 mile an hour fastball was enough to keep hitters off balance consistently. And they, some of the, my favorite pitching ninja gifs this year were Devin Williams and guys just screw driving themselves into the ground, trying to chase a, a changeup that was diving out of the zone. Uh, it was really special to see him pitch a 0.33 ERA, not sustainable by any measure, striking out the, you know, his strikeout percentage that, that Tyler mentioned there, 53%. That probably isn't sustainable either if he was going to go over 162 game season. Uh, but given the limited nature of the season and the fact that some of these other candidates, you know, Alec Bohm, Jake Cronenworth, uh, they were limited as well. Alec Bohm didn't start out the year on the major league roster for the Phillies. Uh, Jake Cronenworth got off to a, a solid start himself, but uh, struggled down the stretch a little bit for the Padres. Uh, there wasn't that separation. Like if Jake Cronenworth plays 140 games, then we'd be like, well, yeah, we're going to give it to him over a reliever. That didn't happen this year. So it allowed Williams to kind of edge his way in. I will say I was surprised that Key Brian Hayes didn't finish higher. He really had a strong finish to the end of the year. And if you're looking at just war, he was actually worth as much as any of these other guys in terms of wins above replacement, even though he played in a smaller sample. That's because he's a really good defender, as we've discussed before. And he really impressed with the bat in ways that he hadn't done at any other level of the minor leagues. Um, again, somebody who probably major league pitching would have caught up with him, but the fact that he was able to dominate in both aspects of the game, I would have thought would have made him a stronger candidate. Maybe he could have gotten more third place votes, but as it stood, he only got one second place vote and two third place votes just ran out of time for key Brian Hayes. And I think, uh, you know, you're looking at who could be a favorite next year. I believe he's still a prospect. Um, so that's somebody to keep on your, your radar uh, when you're thinking about rookies of the year next year. And then the same way, uh, Randy Arizona still a prospect. So we're, we're going to have to keep an eye on both. Yeah. Key Brian Hayes still eligible for the rookie of the year next year. Those are probably your two favorites going into next year, giving, given what they did at the end of the year. So that will do it for our opening segment on this week's episode of the show before the show, Sam, our interview, uh, give us the, the rundown. Yeah. So as we're going to discuss here a lot, I, I feel like at least baseball is in the, the coming weeks. Uh, next week is rule five deadline day uh, on Friday players who are eligible for the rule five draft. We'll get into this more next week, um, but rule five eligible players have to be added to the 40 man roster or else they're left unprotected for the rule five draft, which is going to take place in December. Knowing that I wanted to get somebody on the show who is eligible 
for the Rule 5 draft, but has been added to the 40-man roster. One guy who came to mind instantly for that was actually Greg Dykeman of the Oakland Athletics. I wrote a story on him last year. He had a really standout Arizona Fall League. He led the AFL in home runs. He had nine. Nobody else in the league had more than four. So he was really building up momentum to what could have been a big 2020 season for him. Then it got wiped out. He spent the entire year, or the entire season, I should say, at the alternate site at San Jose. We get into that a little bit. We get into what he did last year at the AFL. But the thing I want you guys to hone in on is what is it like to be a prospect knowing that 40-man deadline is coming up next week? You're eligible to be on it. What do you have to do to prep for that? What do you? What is Greg's uh, thought process? And what does he imagine could come from his career after next Friday? That's all coming up here in my interview with Greg Dyke. This past year has shown us that without your health, you have nothing. If you're not well, you can't work, look after yourself, or take care of your family. You can't enjoy the life you've worked so hard to build. That's why you need to prioritize taking care of your long-term health today, before it goes from good to bad to worse. So invest in your long-term health with Forward. Forward is intelligent medicine with a personal touch. Their doctors are dedicated to catching top killers like cancer and heart disease early before it's too late. And catching them early could save you tens of thousands of dollars in the long run. Everyone's health history is different, which is why Forward doctors personalize a health plan with you based on your genetics, lifestyle, and biometrics to achieve long-term results and ensure nothing gets missed. It's time to invest in a doctor that's invested in you. Go to GoForward.com today to protect your future health. That's GoForward.com. GoForward.com. Well, we're very happy this week to be joined on the show before the show of the Minor League Baseball Podcast by number 14 A's prospect, Greg Dykeman. Greg, how are you doing? Good, Sam. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no, thank you so much for joining us. So so kind of give us an idea where you are right now. We're, we're going to get into this a little bit, but about a year ago this time, you were dominating the AFL. Um, a lot has happened in between insofar as almost nothing has happened in between, uh, at least on the field, um, that we've been able to see from you. So give us an update. Like, where are you now? What, what was 2020 like for you? Well, like everyone, it was a you know, a whirlwind as far as just from spring training getting shut down completely to trying to figure out, you know, when it's going to start back up, if it's going to start back up, if we're going to have a season, if there's going to be a big league season, you know, the whole spiel. Um, so, I mean, yeah, it's kind of, I, you know, we got shut down in, what was it, in the March. And then I ended up packing up and driving home to Louisiana. Um, and then I stayed there till about June just kind of hitting and working out and just staying ready, almost like an extended off season, even though we had had a full big league spring training already. Um, and then went back out to Arizona in June because just kind of through the grapevine, I heard that we might be starting up at the end of June. So I wanted to get out there and, uh, you know, we didn't end up starting till the beginning of July. And then that's when we got our call for our report date. Um, but then as you know, and everyone else knows the A's, situation as far as an alternate site was a lot different than most people's we started um a few weeks maybe almost close to a month later than most people um originally it was going to be in stockton california which was which was where a high affiliate was and then ultimately we got moved to san jose and that's where we settled in um 
and that's that's basically where our alternate site ended up being. Yeah, and and uh, one of our reporters did a story about it and just how it was like to to put that site together from kind of a organizational standpoint. But what was that like as a player? A lot of these alternate sites were places that people have known before. San Jose, uh, you know, you know maybe a little bit as an opponent, but not not uniquely uh, as a player. So what was it like going through that, playing in a different organization stadium? Yeah, I mean, it was definitely an adjustment, but I think everybody kind of went into it with an open mindset, knowing that it's not going to be a full competitive season, that we weren't going to be playing other teams, um, and that we're not going to be in a place that's very familiar to us, although I think some people may have had their own affiliates that they were able to play at. Um, So, yeah, I mean, I definitely played there. So it's familiar with the field and stuff like that. But as far as in and out every day and then living in a hotel in the middle of San Jose for, you know, a little over a month, almost two months, it was definitely an adjustment. But like I said, um, I think everybody kind of went into it with an open mindset, just being happy that we get to play baseball after what was essentially a three-month hiatus. Um, So, I mean, we had a good group out there. We had uh, definitely some older guys, double-A, triple-A, some French big league guys. And then some of our younger international prospects and then our 2020 uh, first rounder, Soderstrom. So it was an interesting group. Um, we had a great group of coaches out there. Um, our farm director, Ed Sprague, was out there. So, I mean, the camp almost ran itself from the, the aspect of it being older guys. Um, and then, you know, our AAA manager, Fran Riordan, uh, kind of gave them the reins and kind of gave the older guys the reins to kind of – I guess, lead the way. Um, so it was definitely a smooth camp. It was, it was a fun camp. It was laid back. Um, but again, I think everybody was just happy to get out there and just be able to get some reps in, whether it was against each other, um, you know, in inner squads or whatever it ended up being. Um, like I said, a three month hiatus and then being unsure of whether we even get to play baseball. And that group of 30 of us were fortunate enough just to be able to get invited to go play some sort of baseball while the rest of minor league baseball was stuck at home. Yeah. And and what was, or what were your areas of focus during that time in San Jose? Because a big thing for you coming into the year was that you hadn't played more than 80 games in a regular minor league season. You added to that with a great AFL uh, last year, but in terms of a regular season, you were looking forward to, I'm sure playing a hundred plus games this year. And that was wiped out from the pandemic. So in the time you did get at San Jose, what was your, or what were your areas of focus? Yeah, I think that's something that you and I had talked about previously after the AFL was, you know, some of my goals going into what was this year, and that was to be able to play a full healthy season. So it was kind of a bummer when it didn't get to happen. Um, But then again, you know, I keep reiterating it, just being able to get invited to go play some kind of competitive baseball and get some kind of development in was huge. So um, going in, I took it as, you know, this is my season, as I think everybody else did. And, you know, I was going to go in there and compete, focus on the areas that I needed to focus on, which was basically being more consistent in my at-bats. And then ultimately just putting up good numbers, um, you know, for myself, for the team, because this was was a huge year for me. Um, And although the development aspect as far as playing 140 games and and getting those 500 at-bats was the main focus, um, you know, everybody kind of went through the same thing. So being able to even just get 100 at-bats there, against some, you know, top-level pitching, which was our guys that, you know, we had a few that made their big league debuts, a few that already had some big league time. So 
um, by no means was it, uh, you know, subpar pitching. So it, it was definitely a competitive atmosphere, and I was definitely, uh, you know, excited to be able to face that triple a fringe big league competition that i was expecting to face this year had we had a full season hmm. and, and just to point out for people at home who might not know your story um when we talked last year we talked a lot about for an article on the site about you know you were overcoming a hamate issue at, at one point you, you rolled over on your right shoulder and, and missed a, a bunch of time with midland last year just some kind of freak injuries um so now that you were able to face that like you were saying triple a ish pitching do you feel like a different hitter now? Like what, given what you were able to do in the spring in big league camp to where you are now as a hitter, what's changed or what's developed the most for you? Do you feel like in the first, the last couple of months? Well, the thing that I've learned, especially the past couple of spring trainings getting to go up to the big league side and back up. And then this year being invited to big league camp and getting to play through a full big league camp. Um, and then, you know, translating that into a season, there's definitely a different mindset. Um, in spring training, you know, it's it's time to get your development. It's time to get your timing back and get ready for the season. Whereas when you get to the season, you know, it's time to compete and, and start winning games and start, you know, trying to push through the ranks. And if you're in the big leagues, pushing for that World Series. Um, so there's definitely a different mindset. So I definitely took, uh, you know, the advice that I got from big league hitting coaches during big league spring training. And I kept that, you know, in my head and, and in my work ethic during that hiatus that we had. And then when we showed up to the alternate site, you know, I just tried to apply that, but in the same aspect of, you know, this is my season, this is time to put up some numbers, this is time to compete. Um, it's not time to get ready anymore. So, you know, that's kind of the, the approach I took. Um, and it was, like I said, it, it was time to compete. It was time to, you know, kind of put up numbers in the limited amount of time that we had and, and you know, leave a lasting aspect of, or, uh, you know, what's the word I'm looking for? <laughs> Uh, impression, hmm. you know, leave a lasting impression in, in that short span of a hundred at bats um, against, like I said, the triple A competition that I would have been facing. And every year, you know, I've, I've bumped up a level. And so, I've, you know, I'd like to think I bumped up a level this year being that that was the pitching I was facing. So getting to understand, you know, the way that they pitch um, we had a Perez, Carlos Perez and, and uh, Austin Allen, they're calling games. So I got to see what, you know, AAA games were called like. So that was definitely a big step in my development, I think. Um, you know, being if I, you know, can break out of camp next year and go to the big leagues or if I ultimately end up in AAA, um, that I think I kind of have a head start on that, being that I had 100 at-bats of what I would like to say, AAA game calling. Yeah, and one thing you keep saying, and that I've come back to a lot with guys who worked out of the alternate site this year, is when you're saying putting up numbers – Normally we have stats to go off. You know, we can go back and look what you did at Midland and Stockton and all these other stops and alternate site that is not publicly available. So what were they sharing with you? Like, what were you looking at? Were you looking at TrackMan data? Were you looking at exit velo and launch angle stuff? Is that what you mean by numbers? Or were you guys keeping track of like over a hundred bats? I went, you know, 25 for a hundred with 10 homers. Like what, what were you looking at to track that progress during the time in San Jose? Well, yes to both. Um, they were keeping a rough book during the games um, and then, you know, putting up those stats uh, every day as far as, you know, like your your basic stats, your average, your hits, walks, extra base hits, blah, blah, blah. Um, they were keeping a rough book on that. So those numbers weren't exact, but they were, you know, pretty close. And then we did have our track man data for the most part. Um, 
see, we would post the top 10 exit velos um, in camp. And then, you know, if someone bumped you off the list and, you know, they were on the top 10. And so, I mean, they were kind of keeping track of both. It was more for, I guess, your own gauge, um, obviously because the, the higher ups in the front office want to see your numbers in that span as well. But I think it was more so for us to be able to, you know, look and see, uh, you know, kind of where we were because through the first couple of weeks, they weren't even posting it. And then the last few weeks they started posting it. So I guess we could get an idea of where we actually were. And and what idea did you get? Like what, what were you looking at most personally to track where you were at the end of camp compared to the start? Um, just everything overall. Um, you know, I had some of the top, top exit velocities, which I pride myself on because, you know, that means you're, you're hitting barrels, obviously. Um, and then, you know, I, I looked at my average and my extra base hits, home runs, walks, stuff like that, strikeout rate. Um, you know, because like, I, I know I keep saying that's how redundant, but you know, this was my season. So it's like the same thing as looking at your stats at the end of 140 games and, and seeing, you know, kind of what you did. I'll give you a chance to, to flex here a little bit. What were some of the uh, <laughs> exit velos you were getting at it on the extreme range? Uh, I think my best was uh, 110 point something. I think uh, Sheldon Noisy had the had the highest at like 111.8, but I was I was right on his tail. Okay. I had one or two at 110. There you go. All right. Very cool. Um, and, and speaking of it, Big exit velos. One of the reasons why we wanted to have you on the show this week is, as we talked about a little bit there at the Open, you had a great Arizona Fall League last year, was was definitely an MVP candidate. You ended up leading the league in home runs with nine. Nobody else hit more than four. You led the league in total bases. It's a real shame, but for obvious reasons, we can't do it. But it's a shame that we don't get the Arizona Fall League this year. Just take us through what your AFL experience was like last year and what it did for your career, considering you were somebody who needed to make up at-bats, but you put up numbers in those at-bats at the same time. Yeah, it was an overall experience. It was just a blast getting out there with the best prospects in baseball, a lot of which made their Major League debuts this year. Um, I think they would have made their Major League debuts regardless of you know the weird season or the full season. Um and then, you know, just get, like I said, just getting to share the field with some of the, those guys, getting to compete against some of the best pitching. Um, and ultimately for me, it, it put, I want to say it put my career back on track because um, I struggled with those injuries my first, or, you know, the past two seasons. So I haven't had consistent at-bats. I haven't really been able to show what I can do in a, in a full season. So getting to come off my injury at the end of uh, 2019, and then, you know, make a strong showing through August and then getting invited to the fall league and get to continue that. That was almost like, you know, my second half since I missed the first half of my second half, if you follow me. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think it definitely put me back on track in terms of being able to roll straight from the end of, like I said, my August campaign into a fall league and be able to show what I can do. Um, you know, I haven't really had that opportunity because, both seasons I've gotten hurt in, in the first half of the season. And then um, I didn't even play a year in Stockton. And then I didn't even play again until August in Midland. So it was, it was huge for me. It was huge for my confidence, for my career. Um, and just from the development aspect and, and the confidence aspect of, you know, it almost reminded me that like, Hey, you belong here. You know, you were drafted where you were drafted for a reason. You're a prospect for a reason. And, you know, I went out there and showed it. I showed it to everyone else and I showed it to myself. 
And how much of that momentum carried you throughout 2020? Because like we said, you know, you didn't get a chance to, to show it on the field. So the last time you really showed, I mean, spring training is one environment, but Arizona Fall League's a true competitive environment. You're playing against other guys trying to compete and compare yourself to compare yourselves to them. Um, how much momentum did you gain from that? And how much are you still rolling with that momentum given the way 2020 has gone? It's definitely in the back of my mind. It's definitely something, um, you know, that I, that I keep with me. Um, you know, if I ever need a little boost of confidence or if I ever need to remind myself like, Hey, you know, you, you belong, you know, you're a big leaguer, you're a future big leaguer. You're going to be a big leaguer for a long time. Um, that's kind of what a draw off of. And so, I took that momentum into big league spring training and I had a, a pretty good showing spring training one that is. And then, you know, not getting to play every day being that it was my first big league invite. Um, but I, like I said, I definitely had a strong showing and then ultimately we got shut down. And so I tried to carry it into the old site as far as, you know, I just keep it rolling, keep the momentum rolling, keep my good showings rolling. And I, I think I did that. I had, you know, posted a pretty good stat line and, um, hit some balls hard and, and had some really good at bats off some really good pitching. So um, it's definitely something, like I said, I keep with me. Um, I definitely think it's, it's always going to be a part of my career that I can look at and draw off of, um, you know, coming off of two really, really tough years and then bouncing back in a, you know, prospect heavy league and a, in a pitching heavy league, like the way I did. And again, to, you know, you hit nine home runs in, the fall league last year, your career high was 11 that you hit in 80 games in the Texas, Texas league. I know Texas league can be a little bit of a pitcher's league. Um, but how much of your true power do you feel like came across there? And are you closer to a power hitter from what we've seen in the fall league, or is it closer to what we saw in the Texas league, which again, I know you were dealing with some injuries there. Yeah. I mean, hitting, hitting nine and 23 games is, um, you know, it's like one of those things that you would go through in a full season. You're going to sit there and you're going to get hot for a month or two. And then, you know, you probably cool off and you hit one every, you know, fifth game. Um, so, you know, it's, it's definitely not a pace, you know, that I look at that, like, Hey, this is the pace I need to stay on because in that case I'd hit 70 home runs. And, you know, <laughs> sure. I don't think that's been done since the Sosa McGuire is. Um, so it, it's definitely, uh, when I look at what I did in the fall league, I look at it as a whole and I look at my approach and what I was able to do, the home runs I was able to hit. Um, I think seven, six or seven of the nine were to left center opposite field, um, which was huge for me because if I can, you know, get my power going out that way, then I'm right. Um, if I'm sitting here hitting skyscraper home runs to right, you know, they're usually few and far between. Um, but when I'm getting to my power to left center, then, you know, all my numbers are falling into place and I'm usually a way more consistent hitter. So that's kind of the things I try to draw off of, and, you know, so I know if I hit a double in the left center gap, I'm right. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to get to my power. It's, you know, it's going to, I'm going to be barreling balls pretty consistently. Um, so that's what I try to do. That's what I try to get at. And another reason we wanted to bring you on this week is as we're speaking, we're about eight days out, uh, or I guess nine days, technically, out from the uh, Rule 5 deadline where Rule 5 eligible players such as yourself this year uh, have to be added to the 40-man roster to be protected from the Rule 5 draft. You were a second-round pick out of LSU in 2017, making you Rule 5 eligible this year. Uh, How much of that roster status situation are you aware of during the season, knowing that this is coming up? 
Um, how much are you aware of it now as you're thinking like November 20th is coming up? Is that something circled on your calendar? Like, how do you think about that process? Um, it's definitely something that I have, you know, circled on my calendar, but it's, it's a process that I've tried to educate myself on through talking with my agent, talking with other players, friends that have been through the process, um, guys that have gotten protected and have not gotten protected. So I just wanted to be completely educated on it. Um, but I didn't, you know, I didn't, I don't go into the year or I had, did not go into the year, um, playing, I guess, for that protection. Um, cause I think if you do that, you start to press and, and things just fall apart when you press. So, um, I just, you know, it's going to be what it's going to be. You know, if they feel like they need to protect me and they want to protect me, then they're going to, if they feel like I'm a guy that, you know, they think they don't have to protect and I can slip through, then ultimately that's what's going to happen. But by no means that I go into the year, um, you know, playing for that. Uh, I think, it, like I said, it's a process that's going to take care of itself. The only thing I can do is, is what's on the field. Um, and so, you know, they're going to fill the 40 man with their needs, you know, whether that be pitching, whether that be another outfield prospect, whether that be an infield prospect. Um, so like I said, it's just kind of a process and a decision that, you know, they're going to make. And ultimately I'm just, going to leave it in their hands and you know like I said I did what I did on the field and hopefully that's enough and in those conversations you had with your agent and other players who have gone through this what was part of that education like what did you take away from this process that you didn't know at the outset um it's just kind of the ins and outs of you know what happens when you're on the 40 man what happens you know if you don't get protected and someone rule fives you what happens if you don't get protected and you go back into the program um, so I just kind of wanted to learn every aspect one, you know, for my own situation, you know, in case I hit any of those or, um, you know, just, I like to be educated in general in all the, uh, off season transactions and stuff like that. Um, I think it's just good for your career and just good for your own knowledge. Um, just moving forward. And looking at the A situation right now, as we're speaking, there's 32 players on the 40 man. So they have eight open spots. I imagine you're going to get one of them. Um, but it, when that moment comes, let's say it's with the A's here, or if even you were to get picked in the rule five draft, what would it mean to you to get added to a major league roster in that way, given the way your career has gone so far? Um, it's definitely another, another milestone, um, another stepping stone in your career. Um, you know, everyone starts with playing T-ball all the way up to wanting to be a Hall of Famer. So, um, you know, I've hit every step and stone along the way um, from, you know, high school to playing at a major college to being a high draft pick to getting a big league camp invite. And now, you know, ultimately, hopefully being on a major league roster and going into next year, um, you know, and then the next goal after that is to get to the big leagues, stick and play for a long time. Um, so, again, I'm just kind of, you know, I'm excited about it. Um, I'm definitely looking forward to it, whatever that decision ends up being and whatever path my career ends up taking. Um, you know, like you said, it's only eight or nine days away. So it's definitely something I'm looking forward to. Um, but I'm also looking at it as another, you know, stepping stone to what the ultimate goal is. And being a part of this A's organization for as long as you've been now, you know, three and a half years, essentially, uh, what they've been doing since you've gotten there is pretty consistently made the playoffs. They made it each of the three last three years. Um, they had fallen in the wild card round before this year, they fell in the ALDS. Uh, you know, what, what is it like 
being a part of an organization that's consistently making the playoffs this year? And what do you feel like the organization needs to do to finally crack through uh, and, and get to that next level of the playoffs? Like, what have you seen as now kind of an A's fan, but also somebody who's potentially going to join the major league roster and help them with that playoff push in 2021? Like you said, the past three years or whatever it's been, they've made the playoffs, um, you know, and they're getting knocked out in the early rounds. But, uh, you know, the the fact is they're making the playoffs. You know, they know how to win. What was it, like 90? They went 97 games or something two years ago. Right. Yep. Um, you know, so they, they know how to win ball games. Um, and so to be, you know, you definitely want to be a part of a program that's winning and that's competing for a World Series, competing for playoff spots. And that's what this organization is doing right now. That's their mindset every year. Um, I remember Bob Melton talking at the beginning of spring training one, you know, that the goal is to win the world series. It's not, you know, let's make the playoffs and see where it goes. No, it's to be the ones holding that trophy at the end of the year. Um, and ultimately, you know, there's only one. So the fact that, you know, they're in the talk every year that, you know, there's some big names that are getting us to the playoffs. And like I said, they know how to play winning baseball. And I think that's what they always pride themselves on. That's what Bob Melvin prides himself on as manager is, is playing consistent winning baseball. So, you know, hopefully being able to contribute to that this next year um, is huge. It's exciting. Um, you know, if I can break into the big leagues and be part of a playoff roster and, and get a chance to make it to the world series and, and try and win that thing, that's every kid's dream. Um, so, you know, that's, that's definitely something I'm looking forward to. Yeah. And, and let's say you get that call maybe in the first half, maybe in the second half, we'll, we'll see. There's lots to determine about what baseball is even going to look like next year. But when you do potentially get that call to Oakland, what do you feel like you're going to bring to the team? We've talked a little bit about it here, the ability to drive the ball the opposite way, the ability to show more power. What is going to be your aim from day one to provide the A's with from your tool set? The same thing that I, I try to develop every year more and more is, is consistency. I just want to be a consistent player on the field, be a consistent force in the lineup and um, defensively on the bases uh, at the plate. Um, obviously, you know, my, my bat is, is the talk about me, but I, I do pride myself a lot on defense and my base running and, um, you know, my arm. So I just being an all-around player, just being an all-around guy that they can just rely on, um, at any point, you know, whether, whether I'm a starting guy, whether they bring me in late game, whether, you know, I'm a middle of the order guy, bottom of the order guy, whatever it may be. I just want to be that, that all around reliable player that can be a force in the lineup. And this has been one of my favorite questions asked this past year, because I feel like the, the call can come at any time. We've seen guys get called up who haven't played class a before. You never know when that call is going to come. Um, and as you said, you know, getting, that call will kind of be like a childhood dream come true. So what do you envision your first at bat going like? Like, what are you going to be thinking in the on deck circle? What is your walk-up song going to be? Like, what is going to be going through your head at that time? Do you think? I've, I don't even know. I've had a bunch of friends that have made their debuts and, you know, I've asked them all the same thing. You know, what was it like? What were you thinking? You know, how'd you feel? Um, and they're all just like, dude, the lights were bright. My legs were numb. <laughs> he's like, it's just, he's like, it's just the best feeling in the world. He's like, you don't even know how to describe it. So I'm assuming it's going to go something like that. You know, I'm going to get in the box and I'm sure I'm going to have those butterflies and I haven't even thought about a walk up. God knows. So <laughs> <laughs> I got a lot of, I got a lot of thinking and planning to do, but, uh, 
you know, I'm not going to compare it to college, but my, my first at bat in college, I just remember I was nervous as all hell and, and the lights were super bright and I, I couldn't even see the other jerseys on the field. I was just like, wow, this is amazing. So I can only think it's going to be that magnified times 10. Yeah. I was going to say, are you, are you a type of person who's going to learn from that and, and like try to take it slow or are you just going to take it for all its glory and, and basically, um, you know, take in that, Hey, this is it. All the lights are bright. This is cool that I'm here. Oh yeah. By no means is it going to put me on my heels. I'm, I'm going head first into that thing. It's, uh, something I've always done is, you know, just, just go for it. I'd rather follow my face being aggressive than, than being timid. So, um, yeah, I'm going I'm to go up there and I'm going to swing it. I'm going I'm to do what I can do to hit my, my first AB, hit a home run, you know, there whatever you it may be. So it's, uh, you know, that's that's a storybook ending. But no, like I said, it, it's definitely something that I want to take in. And it's something that I'm a, I can imagine I'm only going to remember for the rest of my life. So um, by no means do I think it'll make me timid. It's something that I'm going to just grab by the horns and just go for it. All right. Well, I think that's as good a place as any to end it. Uh, Greg Dykeman, A's outfielder, potentially member of the uh, A's 40 man roster as as early as next week. Uh, we'll be keeping an eye on, on the news for that one. But Greg, thank you so much for joining us. All the best uh, with everything that's to come here in the off season, And uh, we'll be in touch somewhere down the line. Thanks, Sam. Appreciate you having me again. Well, I don't have a fancy intro or segue here, so we're going to bring on Ben Hill. Uh, ben, how are you doing? I'm doing well, Sam. I don't have a fancy uh, response to you, you know, but we're uh, men of the people, real, uh, what is it, proletariats? That's the word? Is that Util- the word? Proletariat? Uh, utilitarian? Protein? Protein? I don't for, know. We're real protein here. Well, there's uh, a word, P-R-O-T-E-A-N. What does that mean? Oh, no. That means tending or able to change frequently or easily. But that, too. <laughs> we're, we, we do this on the fly, I think, is what, what we're, we're trying to tell the people. In case um, you couldn't tell. Yeah, in case you couldn't tell. <laughs> um, but, yeah, Ben, uh, you know, we talked about this a little bit in the open, Tyler and, and me. But uh, just quickly, your reaction now that we have two of the farm systems officially confirmed. Sounds like the other 28 are probably all going to come at once and and it's going to be a little bit of time until we hear that. Um, But the New York Yankees and New York Mets uh, both saying what their farm systems are going to look like. The Yankees going with Scranton, Wilkes-Barre, Somerset, uh, Tampa. And for some reason, the fourth one's escaping me at at, at this moment. Um, Hudson Valley. Hudson Valley. Thank you very much. One that's right up the road from here. Uh, The New York Mets saying that they are going with Syracuse, Brooklyn, Binghamton, and St. Lucie. We don't know quite the order of that. We don't know if Brooklyn or Binghamton is going to be the AA affiliate, who's going to be the Class A advanced affiliate. Some things still to work out there. But as somebody who's been to pretty much all of these places, except for Somerset, I guess, right, um, in an official minor league capacity, just your reaction to this news and, and what we know so far. Yeah, I mean, there's so much to sort out, even just, in, you know, we could talk for a long time just about these two teams let alone uh, all the unanswered questions with the other 28. And obviously we're hoping these co- this comes out uh, fairly soon and, you know, all at one time, which I think is the expectation now. Um, and then we'll obviously spend a lot of time making sense of it all. 
Um, I think this process, pretty much no matter who you are, is going to be one of like mixed emotions as, as uh, you know, we learn about this, you know, with the loss of teams or teams becoming affiliated and going to wood bat. There's so much to process. Um, you know, so with the Yankees, you know, I've uh, I went to a Trent Thunder game in high school. I think back then they were a uh, Detroit Tigers affiliate. But, you know, I have family from that area and uh, always enjoyed visiting Trenton. So uh, they had a long relationship with the Yankees. So that one, you know, is you know, tough for me personally to see, to see that affiliation uh, lose out. I hope Trenton finds a way to stay in the affiliated realm. Um, and then being replaced with Somerset, that's the first example we've seen of a previously independent league or independent team coming into the affiliated ranks. Um, you know, there's been speculation about other ones that will probably enter as well, but Somerset, the first one, the Somerset Patriots. Um, so on that end, it's just like, well, I, I'm interested in learning more about that team in that area because, uh, you know, we haven't really covered a, uh, independent leagues uh, very much in the past for obvious reasons because it's not minor league baseball. Uh, Hudson Valley for the Yankees, um, you know, they uh, are part of the Gold Clan groups and um, their previous Class A team uh, that they're not renewing an affiliate uh, an affiliation with the Charleston River Dogs as the same ownership group. So you do see them, the Yankees, maintaining a, a relationship with the Gold Klein group, uh, leaving their team in Charleston, South Carolina, but bringing uh, Hudson Valley, uh, who were previously a short season affiliate uh, with the Tampa Rays, now being a full season affiliate for the New York Yankees. Um, so you see how complicated this all gets. Um, how much there is to uh, sort out with all the movement uh, with the Mets. Uh, my biggest takeaway, and I tweeted this was, I was just glad to see Binghamton uh, maintain an affiliation. We don't know yet whether it's going to be continuing on double a, or if it might be uh, a advanced, um, there's a lot to be sorted out with that. But, you know, I was, I was just happy to see uh, an area with such a rich baseball history. That's been a Mets affiliate for 30 years uh, that had some real angst uh, about whether they would continue in the affiliated ranks uh, I was really glad to see that. And, uh, you know, we were talking about this, uh, you know, quote unquote off air, but we both live in Brooklyn, you know, Sam, you and I, and uh, to see the Brooklyn Cyclones go to a full season team, I think for both personal and professional reasons is something, you know, at least selfishly, we can be happy about just to have more baseball uh, that's truly local and accessible via subway ride. Uh, always enjoyed, you know, that front office and that organization. And uh, of course, the energy of Coney Island in general, although it's a different energy in April or in May, maybe a lack of energy and kind of cold, but there's always a charm to Coney Island. And uh, I'm really uh, excited to see what they do with a full season, you know, going forward on that front. You know, the Mets previous Class A, Columbia, um, the, you know, the Fireflies, that is no longer an affiliation, but uh, we can be sure that they will be in the affiliated ranks, the Columbia Fireflies ballpark you know, open in 2016. So it's pretty much a no brainer that they stay in uh, and on and on it goes, you know, I guess that was a short answer, but it was a long answer. <laughs> but this just shows how much we could talk and talk and talk and talk. And, you know, in our role, you know, we wait for all the uh, T's to be crossed and the I's to be dotted and what have you, but you can rest assured we'll be talking about this and writing this about this a lot from all sorts of uh, uh, angles going forward. Yeah. And, and not to hound too much on the Brooklyn point you made there, but um, the Cyclones have long been some of the most creative uh, people in the promotional game, um, bringing people out to, to Coney Island and fitting in there, obviously, with the carnival-like atmosphere. Uh, I do wonder if they're going to lean into that more in April and May and, and really try to get people out to the ballpark or, ballpark, or if they're just going to accept them as extra games and, and you know get into that the wackier stuff in, in June, July, and August like we're used to them seeing. So that'll be a lot, to, a lot of fun to see. And uh, as you said, a lot of I's to dot and T's to cross and 
um, you know, once the schedule gets set, then we can see some of these promotional schedules and, and what can come from some of these new clubs and old clubs and new clubs and new places or old clubs and new places, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, you know, speaking about promotional material and um, looking back at, at some of the best promos of the last decade, then uh, you've been doing these stories the last couple of weeks. You've done 2010, 2011, and 2012 that we've d- discussed on the show before. Uh, your latest piece in this series uh, called Minor League Baseball Promos of the Decade turns to 2013. And you start out this one with the Harlem Shake, uh, which uh, maybe Tyler can edit that in here. I don't know how rights work. But if it's not already playing in your head, you remember what the Harlem Shake was like seven years ago. Just how much did this take off? across minor league baseball. Yeah, it was funny, you know, as he said, this is a year by year series. So I started researching 2013 and the best promotions. And this was something that largely occurred during the off season, but I made an exception because it was in the late off season uh, and, and, and led the article with this just because even though it was only seven years ago, I just feel like this particular uh, cultural phenomenon kind of feels like a long time ago. And I thought it might be good for all of us to think back to a simpler time when dozens and dozens and dozens of minor league teams across the country did their own Harlem Shake videos. If you recall those videos, uh, the premise was basically um, they would start innocuous uh very uh, low key, a couple characters just kind of sitting there and waiting. But then when the bass drop of the song comes in, then quick jump cut and it turns to chaos. And of course, minor league teams are good at creating minor league baseball style chaos, uh, you know, with the Harlem Shake videos in locker rooms and on the field. And, uh, you know, with characters like, you know, Taco Bell hot sauce packets and crayons and mascots and who knows who else, you know, they, they raided their supply rooms and just created these really surreal videos. So I just wanted to take a moment and uh, remember the Harlem Shake 2013, what a phenomenon it was, one of the you know, earlier video-based memes that really swept the country. And I think it really uh, you know, just shows the energy of the country and the energy of minor league baseball in uh, 2013 as that season got going. And uh, yeah, just going through you know, some highlights of the season. Um, Roger the Shark Bernardina, that figurine in uh, the Potomac Nationals. Uh, you know, kind of really set forth in motion their whole uh, uh, legacy they left behind promotionally of combining uh, man and beast into really bizarre giveaways. And that started that year with Roger the Shark Bernardina, you know, uh, eventually led to things like, uh, you know, the Wilson Ramos Buffaline, the Jason Worth the Wolverine, Anthony Rendon was an ant at some time, Bryce Harper a turkey. You know, it's, it's fun to see where these crazy ideas started. And, uh, you know, so and on and on it, it went. Um, Fort Wayne Tin Caps did a Twitter jersey uh, where at the time they had about 6,200 followers. I'm sure they have more than that now. But they did a Twitter jersey in 2013 that had the handles of tons and tons, many, many of their followers on the jerseys. And kind of interesting to see an early example of a social media uh, innovation on a jersey along those lines. We talked about Brooklyn Cyclones. Uh, Sandy the Seagull had a bar mitzvah at the ballpark that year. Uh, so I didn't know Sandy had been Jewish until he had a bar mitzvah. And I don't think we've really uh, been privy to the religious leanings of mascots in the past, but Sandy the Seagull in Brooklyn is uh, Jewish and he had a bar mitzvah in 2013 at the Cyclones MCU Park. So, you know, whatever it is we're talking about, I could just keep going and going, but the 2013 in minor league baseball promotions, check it out on the site, read the other installments. Tell me what you remember from that year and uh, I'll keep going with it. Yeah. And then, uh, you mentioned Fort Wayne in there and would you say they had about 6,000 followers at the time? Um, they are now up to 48,000. Um, so yeah. good luck fitting that on a Jersey, but that, that feels like such a time capsule of 
hey, Twitter is neat, isn't it? You, you guys, isn't this novel that we put the at sign in front of our name? And uh, if you follow us, you might be featured on a jersey, like how crazy that is and how big the platform has obviously exploded to the point where it's affecting our democracy and many other aspects of our daily lives. Um, but while we're talking about promos, uh, ben, you have another story this week that isn't really promotional per se, but it does involve bringing people to the ballpark in a positive way. Uh, the, the Rocket City Trash Pandas, who we haven't really gotten to talk too much about this year. This was supposed to be their first season in minor league baseball. Unfortunately, the season got canceled, so they are still awaiting their debut, uh, which will have to come in 2021. Um, but while they're not playing baseball, they're still trying to leave an impact in that Huntsville, Alabama area. Um, they tried to set a Guinness world record. They didn't quite get there, but that's not the important thing. Tell us more about this story, Ben. Yeah. Well, you know, covering minor league promotions through the years, I have always been a sucker for a Guinness book of world record attempts. And usually in the world of minor league baseball, uh, these record attempts, uh, you know, are along the lines of, uh, you know, world's largest head, shoulders, knees and toes sing along, or most people dental flossing at once or chewing gum at once. Uh, uh, you know, that kind of thing, wearing pig noses at once. I was once the, once the goose in the world's largest game of duck, duck, goose. So those are fun world records. And, uh, you know, fun fact, almost none of them are actually world records because Guinness, they are taskmasters, man. And you really got to document these uh, world records well. Anyway, that's all a prelude to what happened in Rocket City where they, a philanthropic event on Wednesday throughout the day, they staged a, um, a food drive and, uh, it was a 12-hour food drive, but throughout the course of this ballpark uh, food drive that was staged by the Rocket City Trash Pandas, they were attempting to set the record for largest food drive in a single location within a 24-hour period. And they really went for it in terms of uh, coordinating with Guinness and you know getting the witness statements and uh, certifying that their scales were accurate. And the previous record was uh, you know a huge amount, uh, 559,000 pounds of food uh, connected at a school uh, collected at a school in North Carolina in 2011. So, you know, I got in touch with the team beforehand and said, I want to do a story about this. I like philanthropic events and I like Guinness Book of World Record attempts. And uh, hey, Rocket City, you know, I'm glad to write about you too, because you were supposed to have an inaugural season in 2020. And of course, that didn't happen. So as for the food drive itself, it was maybe a little anticlimactic on the Guinness Book of World Records front. Um, I talked to Lindsay Nup, uh, their director of marketing, and she said, you know, well, we, we had a whole lot going on, but towards the end of the day, it was clear we weren't going to break the record and we stopped weighing the food because there was just so much work to do in terms of distribution and sorting um, that, you know, having to do all these Guinness approved uh, weighing and documentation measures were just slowing the whole process down. So in the interest of expediency, they, you know, gave up on the world record attempt at some time. Still waiting to hear from the team, maybe an exact uh, total of uh, food collected, or maybe they don't have the exact total because they stopped weighing it so precisely once they abandoned the world record. But bottom line, the Rocket City Trash Pandas uh, did not break a world record, but they had a 12-hour um, food drive at their ballpark, collected literally hundreds and hundreds of thousands of pounds of food, uh, partnered with approximately a dozen local organizations. You know, we're trucking it out uh, all over the region throughout the day um, to all sorts of organizations in need. Obviously, there are always these needs. It is obviously more pronounced now during the pandemic in terms of uh, you know, these issues, hunger issues, access to good quality food issues, um, just a lot of insecurity. So uh, it's always a good time to do something charitable, uh, but now is especially a good time uh, as we enter into the holidays and the cold weather and with the pandemic still raging, uh, people need help more than ever. And if a minor league team can help coordinate 
literally hundreds of thousands of uh, food, you know, canned goods, non-perishables being collected and donated. Uh, it's a good thing. No, it's, it's definitely a good thing. And I, and I really do appreciate the way you open this story um, you know, with your first graph saying on Wednesday, the Rocket City Trash Pin has staged one of the most successful and impactful events in the short history of the franchise. They also fell short of a much publicized stated goal. Two things can be true at the same time. So I know the framing of this feels like, hey, we're setting out to, to set a world record. The important thing is people are getting food at a time that they need it. Um, if it's a Guinness World Record that tries to drive people out and gets all that food together, that's great. But the end goal is always the end goal, which is uh, to help out the community. And for a, a team like Rocket City, like we've said, you know, trying to ingratiate themselves with the community in Huntsville and that surrounding area, uh, this is a great way of doing it and, and putting yourself on the map. And hopefully this, be, this becomes, you know, an every year thing or an every couple months thing. Um, whether they set the record or not, this is this is the type of impact in the community we love to see. Um, so thank you for for highlighting it, Ben. Uh, we'll catch you again next week and uh, take care until then. Sounds good. I'll continue to be a man of the people. I'm sure you as well. Uh, we will be uh, plebeians and not patricians. I believe that's the uh, terminology. Remember that for next week. It's going to be a quiz. Plebeians, not patricians. Thank you. Big thanks to Greg Dykeman and Benjamin Hill for joining the show today as we get set to say goodbye. But before we do, Sam has this week's Nationwide Prospect Fact of the Week. Yeah, so going back to what we talked about in the opening segment with the Rookies of the Year, this thing really, this fact really stood out to me uh, this week for our Nationwide Prospect Fun Fact. Uh, the second it happened, it was pretty striking to me. As some of you might know it at home, uh, the Rookie of the Year Award in both the American League and the National League uh, they're both called the Jackie Robinson Awards. Um, we don't often refer to it that way. It's usually just the rookie of the year, but maybe that's a thing we should start doing. There are some people in my mention saying that I'm all for it. Anyways, the official award is called the Jackie Robinson, Robinson Award. The name was changed in 1987 uh, to com commemorate the 40th anniversary of when Jackie Robinson broke Major League Baseball's color barrier. This year with Kyle Lewis and Devin Williams in the AL and NL, respectively. This was the first time that two African-American players have won the Jackie Robinson awards in the same year. Um, it's a pretty big moment uh, for baseball and where we all hope baseball can go. Um, you know, representation matters. There's a whole reason why we celebrate Jackie Robinson and what he brought to the game and the diversity he opened up uh, for the game and, and everybody that came after him, including Kyle Lewis and Devin Williams. Um, but beyond that, you know, the, the trend line in baseball right now among African-American players has been going down for the last couple of years. Um, a lot of discussion of what, what's gone into that and why that is and what can be done to change that and how we can get the game to be diverse and celebrated in every corner of this country and every corner of this world as well. Um, so to see Devin Williams and Kyle Lewis win the Jackie Robinson Award in the same year, pretty special moment in 2020. Um, hopefully it's not the last time, uh, you know, I, I'm not going to say a root for anybody based on race or anything like that, but, um, you know, to have Jackie Robinson's awards like that given out to two guys following in his path was a really, really cool moment from this week. Very cool stuff. Devin Williams, by the way, also won reliever of the year. So pretty cool 2020 for Devin Williams as well. And, uh, that'll do it for this week's episode of the show before the show. Big thanks to our guests and, uh, for Sam Dykstra, I'm Tyler mom. We'll talk to you next week.